Welcome to today's IPS Northern Lecture entitled The Way of Hope, the third of this series by Mr. Lim Seong-Guan, our fourth SR Northern Fellow. Following his lecture, Mr. Lim will take questions from this hall and the rooms outside. The Q&A session today will be chaired by Dr. Gillian Ko of IPS. And now, may I invite Mr. Lim to the stage, please. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much again for um, coming along to this third and the final lecture uh, in the IPS um, SR Nathan series on Can Singapore Fall? In my last lecture entitled The Fourth Generation, I expressed the hope that that generation would have much to celebrate at SG100, but also said that we cannot simply leave it entirely to them to make the Singapore of their time for themselves. There's certainly many things they can and should do for themselves. Each generation must solve its own problems. But some things require the work of a generation or more to bring about. For those kinds of things, we must start to work on them now to be in time for that future. A gracious society, an important ideal for the first world society Singapore should aspire to be is such a thing. It will be a society that makes Singapore stand out from the rest of the world. It will be one that our fourth generation will be proud of and benefit from because we have moved in our generation to lay the groundwork for them to flourish and prosper 50 years later. A gracious society because of its spirit of other-centeredness will induce better relationships among people and the different sectors of society including organizations and the government itself. There is scope for the public sector to exercise greater sensitivity towards the people in its communications. Similarly, there can be greater attention to employee engagement in businesses and organizations, better service to customers, and greater instinctive concern for issues like income and socioeconomic divides. I know there are already many initiatives for people to help each other and be kind to each other. There have been many occasions where people spontaneously reach out to help others in trouble, in times of need or crisis. Many Singaporeans have shown that they will extend their heart and their hand to others. But what we need is to have graciousness in the day-to-day -day as an essential feature of our character as a nation. This is culture, an integral part of our makeup as a people. For Singapore to sustain a gracious society, we would need to continue to grow and remain sovereign and independent, because only by being sovereign and independent can we exercise our own choice of how we want to run our society and how we want to lead our lives and how we want to make the future for the generations to come. We would need the continuing capacity to defend ourselves and we need to be able to earn our own keep. We do this by honouring ourselves and our talents, and by honouring our loved ones, neighbour, society, country and beyond, by giving our best in whatever we do. This is the focus of my lecture this evening. How should we think of our economic development and progress in the context of building a sustainable, gracious society? How do we create hope for ourselves today, and even more so for the coming generations? I call my lecture today, The Way of Hope. 
And if we continue as we are without changing, I can only call our cause the way of missed hope. To get to the future we desire, we need to have grit and resilience to stay the course. But haven't you heard this before? In the newspapers and on television, am I saying anything new? In fact, our citizens and students in schools are not short on advice. Sometimes it is for them to have grit and resilience, and most recently, it is new skills, innovation, and entrepreneurship. But to what purpose? For future jobs and personal success? That is important, but no one can guarantee that. How do we inspire and unite our people towards this new path for a cause greater than ourselves? We need to have the imagination to think differently and the spirit and energy to make the change. There's an old African saying which goes, every day the gazelle wakes up knowing that if it can't outrun the fastest lion, it's going to be somebody's breakfast. And every day the lion wakes up knowing that if it can't outrun the slowest gazelle, it will go hungry. We may wonder when we think of Singapore whether we should see ourselves as the lion or the gazelle. The first thing to observe, of course, is that whether we are lion or gazelle, every day when we wake up, we had better be running. <laughs> and second, while we as Singaporeans or Lion City might naturally think we should be like the lion, it happens this time to be the wrong answer. There's a big difference whether we run as number one or number two. The lion in the African saying as number two need only follow whatever way the gazelle goes as long as it keeps up its alertness and its stamina. The gazelle as number one needs, only, needs not only to run fast but has to continually assess whether there is a route it can take which the lion cannot follow. So while physical stamina is critical for both lion and gazelle, mental agility is especially critical for the gazelle. I believe Singapore is unique in the world, in our geography and our demographics. To have a number two frame of mind is the way of mediocrity and perhaps even disaster. Singapore is known for some of our unique handling of wicked problems by learning from best practices elsewhere and the pitfalls to avoid and adapting our solutions to local conditions. In turn, our provision of public housing to the majority of our population, CPF, the healthcare system, are policies that are often studied by others overseas. We, of course, have to be smart and humble to learn from everyone everywhere, but we have to think for ourselves the best way and create our own smart way. We need to think as a leader and not as a follower. Let me set out the line of my thinking by way of a graph, starting with the reference in my first lecture to the essay, The Fate of Empires by Sir John Glubb. You can see that graph on the screen. The x-axis represents time, the life of the nation, while the y-axis represents the strength of the nation. The seven segments represent the seven stages in the rise and fall of nations referred to by Glubb. So you start with the age of pioneers and then the age of conquest, the age of commerce, the age of affluence, the age of intellect, the age of decadence, and then the decay. The age of affluence, of course, is the time where the nation is at its strongest. 
You can refer back to my first lecture on the IPS website for details under specific stages. But what I would like to emphasize is the age of affluence, whereby economic growth is accompanied very often by complacency and apathy, which in turn catalyze social decay. In my second lecture, I suggested that if we could work deliberately at becoming a gracious society as the prevailing social culture of Singapore, we could ameliorate the effects of social decay. In graphical terms, this is what I'm thinking. Right? That's the red dash line, and say, therefore, instead of, a, instead of a fall right down to the bottom, we fall more gradually, and we never reach the bottom. The question, can we avoid such a decline? I don't think we can avoid a decline altogether. Because in many ways, as I explained in previous lecture, the decline is catalyzed, the decline is catalyzed by reaching a stage of affluence. So affluence was the driver for the economic growth. Affluence in many ways also is the cause, the catalyst for the decline. So I don't think we can avoid the decline altogether. But I believe that we can certainly mitigate the effect if we figure out a way to start a new age of pioneers. That means start again and thereby create a new dimension of economic growth. So what I mean in graphical terms is the following. Right. If we can discover a way to start a new, a new S-curve, follow that green line, is there such a way, is there, is, is there a possibility of us to think in this way? And what we are doing there, of course, is just taking the same curve, and you start, just like the curve at the bottom starts from age of pioneers, what we are asking ourselves is, is there a way to conceive of an age of new pioneers? Bearing in mind that the pioneers are the ones who break off from the way things are to create new possibilities because they conquer new lands and think of new ways of getting things done. Thus, if we were to combine the new ascent, the age of new pioneers, with the decay, hopefully with this idea of a gracious society, we end up with a blue dash line as shown in the following graph. Oh, yeah, the blue has changed to, a, to an orange line. Okay, that's the, that, that's the new line. So okay, that's, that's the concept. So the question is, we have to work on both. We have to work on diminishing the, um, the decay, and that we say with the idea of the gracious society which they tried to prevent, uh, present at last lecture. And now what I'd like to discuss this time round is, is there a way to conceive of the green dash line so that we end up with the possibility of a new rise. So this will represent new hope and possibilities for generations to come. But what is this new ascent like? I had mentioned in my first lecture my belief that Singapore had survived and succeeded in its first 50 years of independence for two reasons. First, for being a people and a government who honor our word. We are trustworthy, reliable, and dependable. Government policy development is consistent and even predictable. We deliver on our promises, observe the rule of law, and uphold intellectual property rights. We are prepared to learn fast and work hard. Trust is the defining characteristic. Secondly, we honor each other as citizens and as human beings. We recognize and appreciate our differences and make space for each other 
with respect to race, language, culture, and religion. Diversity is the defining characteristic, and being a gracious society would be an enhanced aspect of this. But I believe these two aspects of honor, honoring our word and honoring each other, will not be good enough to assure our continuing survival and success. I'd like to suggest a third essential aspect of honor for creating a new economic ascent, and that is that we need to be a people who honor innovation, excellence, and outwardness. In this aspect of honor, opportunity is the defining characteristic. It has to do with the way we create opportunity, the way we identify opportunity, the way we develop opportunity, the way we pursue opportunity. So let me explain. These three aspects of innovation, excellence, and outwardness. First, innovation. By innovation, I mean any creation, invention, or improvement that has practical value. We need to welcome new ideas and new ways of doing things. We need to continually think about incremental improvements and also step innovations. Someone has remarked, if you can't explain how you are innovating, then you are not innovating. I recognize that Singaporeans have been encouraged to innovate for years. But what does it really mean for the ordinary Singaporean when he or she is urged towards innovation? Some might perceive it as a technical matter best left to the professionals. Some may simply see it as a threat to their old econo uh, economy jobs. What I'm talking about is a need for a culture of innovation. By culture, I mean the spirit of innovation to be an integral part of our character and personality as a nation and a society. I do not think we are there now, nor do I think that there has been a deliberate, conscious, national effort to get to such a cultural transformation. Let me give you an illustration. Some months back, I visited Block 71 at Ayuraja. You know, the magazine The Economist has referred to Block 71 as the heart of Singapore's technology startup ecosystem and the world's most tightly packed entrepreneurial ecosystem. It is an exciting place of youthful energy and enthusiasm. During my visit, I asked one of the very excited members of one of the startups, what is the greatest problem the person faced? Expecting some technical or business issue they have confronted. Instead, the simple answer I got from the person was, my mother. <laughs> the person had done well in university and could easily have got a well-paying job. The mother simply cannot understand why the person is in a startup. The rewards are uncertain. Even the lifespan of the startup is uncertain. Parents naturally want their children to be safe and secure. When I was in Israel, Recently, I asked, what do Israeli mothers wish of their children? The answer I got was, 20 years ago, Israeli mothers wished their children to be doctors or lawyers. Now they wish their children to be CEOs of startups. Startups and innovation have become an integral part of Israeli culture. We can say the same of Finland and Estonia. Singapore has to get there and be exceptional in our own way. This is a cultural change and a mindset change, and not simply a case of encouraging innovation. 
as just one example of how we need to change our natural frame of mind. Let me refer to the matter of focusing on high grades and awards. In Singapore, we are inclined to pile accolades on people who have achieved top grades or got gold medals and left others unnoticed and unmentioned. But if we want people to be innovative, which requires them to try more and to learn from failure, we have to recognize people for their effort and not only for their success. Have they tried their best in exercising their talents and abilities is the critical question and not whether they got the gold medal. I remember asking a friend whose son had taken part in the Rio Olympics, but who did not win any medals there, as to what his son was thinking now. He said his son was seriously thinking whether he wanted to spend another four years training and sacrificing other things he could spend his time on. What would weigh heavily on his son's mind was whether he would be recognized for trying rather than recognized only if he won a medal. Would society think him stupid or praise his conviction and his tenacity? This is a severe cultural challenge for changing values in society, to value best efforts as opposed to disproportionately rewarding the super A's and gold medals. Nor do we want to simply give everyone a medal for participating. There can never be enough airtime and public recognition to go around for every individual. At the same time, there needs to be far more awareness in society on how to notice and nurture the best effort of others around us. Next, let me give you some remarks on excellence. To me, there is only one definition of excellence, which is to be the best we can be. Excellence is not just the next standard in a grading from satisfactory to good to very good and so on. To me, after very good should come outstanding rather than excellent. Excellence to me is a measure of performance against potential. We have to move away from what appears to be a prevailing attitude on the part of many workers in Singapore, as has been written up in the Straits Times, an attitude of satisficing which means aiming to achieve only satisfactory results because the satisfactory position is familiar, hassle-free and secure, whereas aiming for the best achievable result would call for costs, effort and incurring of risks. When we avoid trying our best by simply doing what is good enough, we are in fact cheating ourselves of what is possible given our individual talents and abilities. This is not just something for government to do, but something which depends very much on the attitude of the individual Singaporean towards work and life. The call often heard for work-life balance is understandable, but regrettable if it is a call to be allowed to not be excellent, to not be the best possible, and to not, be, uh, and to not do the best possible. The government can provide incentive schemes and the infrastructure but it cannot supply the passion and conviction. I was speaking to someone who said he had heard so much about the startup environment in Singapore, so he decided to go for a drive around Block 71 on a Saturday night. He found the whole place dark. Something he would never find in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. I quote this not to fault the Singaporeans, but for Singaporeans to realize others are not like us. And finally, some comments on outwardness. Some years back, I was in Shanghai, 
and decided to take the opportunity to speak with CEOs of Singapore companies which had substantial operations in China. One of them was planning to expand his network of stores in China. I said, that would be a wonderful opportunity for Singapore students to get internship opportunities for exposure in China. He said he would be prepared to take many of such students. But, you know, he added, they tell me Beijing okay, Shanghai okay, Xi'an not okay. In other words, Singaporeans want to go where things are familiar and predictable. They are not adventurous to try new things and work with the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable. They are not curious to confront what they do not know and to learn from every situation. This is a serious problem. Often when I'm asked what is my best advice for young people looking for their first job, I say, chase the opportunities, don't chase the money. Money is what you get for what you already know and what you already can do. Opportunities are what allow you to build your future with expanded knowledge and experience. Don't chase the money, let the money chase you. Another point about outwardness. No foreign investor brought to Singapore by the Economic Development Board is in Singapore for the Singapore economy. They are all here to use Singapore as the base to reach out into the region or globally. Singapore companies which want to grow and expand should similarly position themselves well to go into the region and the world. By all means, use Singapore as the testbed for new ideas, but the end goal cannot be Singapore. The world's largest economies by 2050 are likely to be China, India, the United States, and ASEAN in descending order. In other words, three of the four largest economies will be in Asia with Singapore geographically more or less at the center of them. It would be silly of us not to recognize the opportunity this represents, especially as we also note our major racial composition to be Chinese, Malay, and Indian. But this opportunity can only yield value if Singaporeans are outwardly oriented and not inwardly focused. I quote you another example. There was someone who had worked with me in the civil service many years ago who one day decided to leave for another career which involved working in a variety of other countries. After 10 years, the officer decided to return to Singapore, found a job with a well-established firm, but wondered why the firm needed to have so many experts in senior positions. After a year, the officer remarked that all the experts are required. If the firm had a new business opportunity in an unfamiliar part of the world, the expert was more than likely to say, when do you want me to go? The Singaporean, on the other hand, is more likely to say, let me consult my wife. <laughs> Who, after consulting Google search, is more, likely than, more than likely to say, too dangerous, don't go? <laughs> Please don't get me wrong. It is good to be consulting our spouses and to think about the needs of our family always. There's nothing wrong with the Singapore's decision to not go and to prefer instead the security and comfort of Singapore. But the Singaporean must then also be prepared to accept that his economic value to the firm is not as high as the expats. My formula for Singapore to be able to start the new age of pioneers and make a new economic ascent that breaks away from the past is to go beyond our honor, our word, and honor each other 
to honour innovation, excellence and outwardness. I can summarise these three legs of honour simply as honour trust, honour diversity and honour opportunity. But to get value out of this, we have to understand it as a matter of culture, of the way we think and act and live as Singapore and Singaporeans. And because culture takes time to shape or reshape, it is an intergenerational challenge which needs leadership and consistency of effort and behaviour and action now. Professor Rosabeth Moss Cantor of Harvard Business School has pointed out that financial results are a lagging indicator of a company's health. They tell you what you've just done. They don't predict the future. Culture is a leading indicator. Culture predicts the future. She adds that culture is more important in some ways than strategy, and that if you're not thinking about building your culture for survivability and sustainability, then you're not leading. These are tough words, but nonetheless words of wisdom. I believe that what Cantor says of business applies just as much to nations. GDP and employment figures are a lagging indicator. National culture predicts the course of progress and development of countries. Bearing in mind that culture refers to the collection of values which are lived out in the thinking and behaviour of the people in a company or country, let's now listen to Mr. Jack Ma, founder chairman of Alibaba Group, who spoke of the power of values in a message to the Honor International Symposium in 2016.一开始我对自己的英文和中文都产生了怀疑，因为我发现在汉语里面很难准确地找到一个词，这个honor这个词的汉文。后来我知道你们中间原来也有很多人其实跟我一样，也不是很能够找到这个词的真真正确切的含义
，今天的国际地位最重要的是坚守了 honor 所包含的东西，那就是尊重、正义、诚信、责任和担当等等。我刚开始做生意的时候问，问我就问太太：“你希望你的丈夫将来是很有钱，还是很受人尊重？”他回答说：“当然很受人尊重的，因为很多人认为那时候我们不会赚钱。我以前也看不起商人，我也认为无商不奸。”而且商人创造的社会价值非常有限。等我自己做了企业以后，我才明白，一个做企业家要做的久、做得好，他每天考虑的大部分的事情，都应该跟钱没有关系，和钱有关的都不是战略性的，不以利益为出发点的战略决策才是真正的庙堂之策。所以我一直相信，一个好的财务总监很难做好董事长，因为好的财务总监脑子里全部都是钱。脑子里全是钱的人是很难做好事情，很难做好朋友。阿里巴巴一开始那么难，什么都没有，没有人相信我们要做的事情，人人都说我们是疯子，是骗子。但究竟是什么让我们这个企业活下来？是钱吗？其实我们根本没有钱。是资源，我们也没有资源。是人才吗？其实我们既没有人才，而且人才跑到我们公司看了这赚可都跑了。我们其实有的是价值观，我们有的是客户第一，团队精神。诚信，而这些东西看起来都很虚，很不值钱。阿里巴巴一开始，其实我们很真的非常穷，但是我们有了对互联网发展的信念，我们有对创建未来的梦想，我们有自己做事的价值观。刚开始的时候，我们帮助外贸企业在网上接出口的订单，每年收外贸企业的年费，但是一年下来交易额还不如他们交的年费多。我们的员工心里觉得过过意不去，觉得很对不起人家。年底客户走访的时候，就老老实实跟对方说：“啊，电子商务这个东西啊，是将来会很好，但是没有那么立竿见影。要不你们就退钱，明年别再签了。”结果我们的客户反过来会鼓励我们的年轻人，说：“外贸客户要从传统渠道到网上来，那是需要时间，需要培养。您既然这么为我们着想，我们相信你们。”所以很多这样的公司十多年了，到现在还是阿里巴巴的客户。这十多年的创业走过来，最深的一个感触就是，一个企业家做的最重要的选择，决定公司命运的选择，基本上都是跟钱无关的选择。有很多人说：“马云，你为什么那么厉害？”其实我说，我们不是那厉害，也是我们运气好。但也有人说：“你怎么运气那么好，每次都能成功？”我觉得也不是那样，其实是我们做的选择就比较正确一点而已。阿里巴巴发展到今天，确实有几次关键性的选择。第一次是阿里巴巴那时候要活下来，二零零二年互联网泡沫破灭，那时候公司非常艰难，但我们提出了必须要盈利一块钱。那时候不盈利，我们就死掉了。那时候最痛苦的一件事情就是帮别人去做互联网的网页。你必须要给贿赂，你不给贿赂，人家就不给你做生意。所以我们在杭州呢那一天开了会，讨论了一天。如果给别人贿赂的钱，我们就有可能活着；如果我们不给别人贿赂，我们就可能死掉了。直到下午四点多啊，我记得那一天呢，我们决定，我们永远不给别人贿赂，永远不行贿，宁可公司关了，我们不做这家公司，我们一起再去找工作也必须。要坚持诚信的底线。到了二零零二年，我们居然那一年因为坚持了自己的诚信底线，开始赚钱了
赚钱以后呢，我们看了一下年终，我们发现有两个员工，他们两个人的业绩超过了我们整个集团那时候销售的百分之六十，而这两个人我们发现是给人回扣、给人佣金了、给人那些贿赂了，你说怎么办？如果把这两个人当即开除，那么这个公司就不赚钱了。如果不开这两个公司，那么意味着什么？意味着我们所讲的一切都是虚话，所以我们最后的决定还是开除了这两个员工，不贿赂，直到现在都写在阿里巴巴的员工守则里。谁要是初犯了，我们就会立刻开除。阿里巴巴做大以后，行贿这个事情倒过来了，我们规定不准员工去行贿别人，我们一年内有几个。亿几十个亿的采购，我们在合同里写了这句话：感谢您跟我们做生意，我们希望在跟您未来做生意的过程中，我们的员工不能向您索要贿赂，您也不允绝对不允许给我们一分钱的贿赂。如果我们发现有任何这样的问题，我们公司集团内将永远不跟您做生意。这是我们在合同上写好的。现在阿里巴巴的员工走出去。是很受人尊敬的，这个不是因为我们生意做大了，而是我们的员工有很多的规矩。现在很多地方接待我们是很热情的，但是我们的员工啊，不能让别人的车来接，不能吃人家请的饭，拿一颗糖都要送回去，不然他的价值观打分啊就会很低，啊甚至会受到处罚。后来有一次啊，我们的销售人员在培训，我去看了一下。发现培训老师在讲怎么样把梳子卖给和尚，啊，我听了五分钟，我非常生气，我呢就把这个培训老师给给废掉了，因为我觉得是骗子，因为和尚本来就不需要梳子，把产品卖给那些不需要这个产品的客户，我认为这就是骗术，而不是销售之术，这对我们的价值观是巨大的挑战。阿里巴巴做的第二个选择是支付宝。淘宝建立起来的时候，很快就非常热闹，非常火。但是呢，网上资讯的很多，没有交易，因为没有人相信陌生人，啊，谁也不愿意把钱先付出去，谁也不愿意把货先付出去。如何解决交易的问题是我们最大的问题。那一年呢，我刚好去了达沃斯，我想去找到如何完成这样的一个目的、一个方法。但是我后来发现，所有的企业家都在那里谈论着企业的社会责任。我在达沃斯的时候，突然想明白了：如果我们要在中国发展电子商务，我们必须去真正的做有价值的事情，去真正的推动社会的进步，真正的去创造独特的价值，不然我们永远就发展不起来。而要做到这点，需要有巨大的担当，没有担当，任何事情都不可能做成。中国电子商务发展不起来，就是缺少一个让人和人之间建立信任的东西，而这个东西，我觉得就应该由支付宝来去解决。当天晚上，我给达沃斯啊打电话给我的朋友和同事，我说立刻现在马上去做一个做这个产品，启动支付宝这个产品。如果说因为这个产品要去坐牢，那就是我去。其实中国一直是一个讲诚信的国家。五日三省吾身，古人每天反省自己三件事情，有两件事关乎诚信：为人办事有没有尽力
与朋友相交是否守信用。中国讲诚信，但是中国缺乏诚信体系。支付宝在中国要有价值，就必须建立这么一个诚信的体系。现在阿里巴巴在中国建立了个诚信的体系，用户给你评价，支付宝帮助你交易，最后你的一切痕迹。都是数据，而数据留下来产生了强大的信用。有了这套体系，你才有可能在网上只凭一张图片和几句介绍，就可以向陌生人付钱，向陌生人寄出的商品。我们现在每天有上亿人次的点击，有时候一单生意就是几十万的钻石，上百万的汽车。前几天我们用了二十五秒钟卖出了一百辆奔驰。所以没有诚信体系，这一切几乎全不可能。今天我们最骄傲的不是阿里巴巴卖出了多少商品，而是阿里巴巴建设了一个诚信的体系，用商业的方法向向全所有的人证明了诚信值多少钱。我们建造了一套诚信的体系，我们自己也是这个体系的受益者。这是阿里巴巴一个财年为什么能够实现五千亿美元的销售这样的一个基石。诚信的力量是巨大的。如果说过去中国三十年的发展依靠的是人口红利，是廉价的劳动力，那么接下来中国可以依靠的不是货品与货品之间的差价，而是人与人之间的互信。如果说人类还有什么红利没有被发掘的话，那我相信信任。互信是最大没有开发的财富，我们也只有自己关注 care 这个 honor， 只有自己 honor 自己，我相信才能会赢得别人对你的 honor。所以感谢大会的邀请，很遗憾没有机会来参与这个大会，在这儿向大家表示祝贺，谢谢大家。A little while ago, and and、uh, he was wondering about the meaning of honor because,、uh, as you see, Jack Ma himself was saying that honor is such a difficult word, and he had a difficult time trying to get a Chinese character which、um, which conveys the point.、Um, and my answer is that、uh, if we want to understand、uh, the deeper meaning of honor, and、uh, just ask ourselves what what is the difference between liking and loving? We know very often people use the word love as meaning like a lot. But that that is you know part of the degradation of the use of words until we lose the deeper meaning.、Um, the difference between liking and loving. If you say you like someone or something, it means there's some feature in that thing or there's some、uh, characteristics of the person which appeals to you. Liking is actually thinking about yourself. Loving is thinking about the other person to say if I love the other person, what can I do to make the other person. More comfortable. What can I do to make that person happier? So loving is really thinking about the other person. That's the same idea behind honor. That when we say we honor someone, we're thinking of the other person rather than thinking of ourselves. And this is why there's this idea about let's build a gracious society because the fundamental idea behind a gracious society is thinking about other people and treating other people as fellow Singaporeans and as human beings. Let me go back. Uh, uh, let me go on、uh, to speak a little bit more about this culture of innovation, excellence, and outwardness, because this is what I believe Singapore needs to build up. One might say that culture needs to evolve on its own, but I'm afraid we don't have the time because technology and the world move too fast. 
Modern Singapore was never a product of pure chance or natural evolution, and we are not alone. Finland, for example, has recently carried out a total revamp of its education system to build it around a firm belief in entrepreneurship as the future for Finland. Students are taught skills for entrepreneurship. These skills are not just hard technical skills, which tends to be the way skills are often narrowly understood in Singapore. Rather, these skills contain a heavy dose of what you might call soft skills, which include skills in leadership, in project management, in working as a team. I'm told that a project for students equivalent to what would be primary six in Singapore could be, how do you go about setting up a bank? Finland today has the highest number per capita of what are referred to as unicorns, startups worth more than one billion US dollars each. Despite having a population slightly smaller than Singapore's, it has its sights on producing four Nokias, the hugely successful cell phone company that had unfortunately missed the turning on smartphones, on smartphone, but is seeing a resurrection of its fortunes with new technological developments. Finland is also the home of the very popular mobile game Angry Birds. These successes have allowed the Finns to look at the target of four Nokias as believably achievable. Singapore must find our own way to promote a culture of innovation so that it is life for us, what we are and not just something we do. I had the opportunity recently to hear Professor Muhammad Yunus, the Bangladeshi social entrepreneur, banker, economist and civil society leader who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 for founding the Grameen Bank and pioneering the concepts of microcredit and microfinance. He said, every human being has two parts, the selfish part and the selfless part. The world tends to keep feeding the selfish part. The fundamental reason why Grameen Bank has succeeded when the great majority of institutions who have tried microcredit and microfinance have failed is that the philosophical foundation of Grameen Bank is feeding the selfless part of the human being. And when you feed the selfless part of the human being, they honour things like returning the loans so that other people may benefit when, for their turn to get the loans. Professor Yuno shared that the great majority of Grameen Bank loans had gone to women and that the critical way in which those who had succeeded through the Grameen Bank loans had spent their newfound income was to provide their children a good education. He then heard that a good number of these children, after completing their formal education, had lamented that they could not find jobs. On hearing this, he told them to stop complaining about not having jobs, but instead to set up their own businesses. The children responded that they did not know how to do so. He told them, go home and ask your mother. This is entrepreneurship in real living. People who have to do things for themselves and imagine possibilities for themselves rather than waiting for somebody to create the jobs for you. Let me quote another example of how critical values and soft skills are. I have a friend in Israel who is now retired. When I met him recently, he told me he was going around schools in Israel to set up robotics clubs. I know many schools in Singapore too have robotics clubs. I asked him what they did in these clubs. He said all the members first had to go through lessons in social responsibility. 
I'll never have expected such a need for members of robotics clubs. He explained that robots have to benefit society, so members of robotics clubs have to be trained to think about benefits to society. He added that another lesson members of robotics clubs had to learn was how to cope with failure. He explained that the robotic club members were all targeting at taking part in international robotics competitions. Most of them would never win, so it is essential that the students learn how to cope with failure. Singapore needs to do likewise in emphasizing values and soft skills in our schools, in higher education, and continuous learning, and in society at large, if we hope to be a nation of enterprise and innovation. But we need to recognize that values and soft skills cannot be taught the same way as hard skills. They have to be demonstrated, practiced, and absorbed in daily life, not just by children and students, but by community leaders, public servants, employers, parents, adults, everyone. Academic results are simply not good enough. Being trustworthy and being willing to think, try, learn, lead, and serve are possibly even more important. To deal with a future which is uncertain while quickly changing, we need to realize that the relevance of particular hard skills may well be limited to a few years, while that of most soft skills are likely to be beneficial for a generation, at least. Singapore needs to succeed ahead of other nations, not as a matter of pride or ambition, but as a simple matter of surviving despite the odds against us. What countries can be depends on just three factors namely geography, demographics, and technology. Just three factors, geography, demographics, and technology. Technology can make up for, but just to some extent, the physical limitations of geography. Similarly, technology can make up for, again, just to some extent, the human limitations of demographics. What technology cannot do is to substitute for smart immigration, productive work attitudes, and effort to maximize the development of human talents and abilities. Well-conceived economic policy can produce the greatest benefit from an optimal mix of the factors of geography, demographics, and technology, but how much of such economic policy may actually be implemented depends on how much room there is to do so within the realm of domestic politics, where the degree of openness and sense of urgency of Singaporeans to such change will decide how much of the good ideas may be adopted. It is a supportive combination of political culture, innovation culture, excellence culture, outwardness culture, and change culture that will make the future of Singapore. Singaporeans need a strong sense of self-confidence and courage that come from much trying and learning from doing. However, self-confidence and courage cannot be built up by talking or lectures, but by active learning and failing and improving and trying again. Will parents allow schools to give assignments where answers are not clear, results are not certain, and which their children will not only find difficult but may actually fail to get to the final targets? I was speaking to a school principal recently where she lamented that her school organized trips for their students to spend time in a kampong in Malaysia for the experience of a new environment to help develop enterprise and self-confidence in the students but many parents had refused to grant approval for their children to go. She asked how I would deal with such a situation. I said if I were the principal, I would meet all these parents and tell them that the ever-evolving and uncertain future 
would require their children to be able to cope with new experiences and unfamiliar situations. By not allowing their children to go, they are actually denying their children new skills in self-confidence and courage, which could only be developed by living through the experience. And they are thus disadvantaging their children as compared to those who were going. I've now spoken over three lectures on the theme, Can Singapore Fall? Of course, Singapore can fall. But we can choose to organize ourselves so that we have little reason to fall. I once met a Swiss professor who is familiar with our universities in Singapore. I asked him, as Singaporeans so often do when we meet um, expats and foreigners, I, so I asked this Swiss professor what we can do better. He responded, that is the problem with you Singaporeans. You are very capable in many fields, but you don't know it or do not accept it. You don't build upon what you already are capable of to produce new ideas and try new ways. I take the professor's words to heart. If we think we can, we can. The geographical limitations we face will always be with us, and climate change will no doubt pose new challenges. But if we choose to confront these adversities directly, take confidence in what we already have and know, learn from everywhere but think for ourselves, refuse to be put down by others or to put ourselves down, choose action over talking, and move with purpose and urgency. I'm confident that we will surprise even ourselves. We are both city and state. So winning a good future for ourselves must be winning both as city and state. While one to three percent economic growth may be the new normal for developed economies of nation states larger than us, it's highly questionable as an acceptable new normal for us as a city when other cities are growing at a significantly faster pace. How can Singapore be satisfied with one to three percent when cities in the region and elsewhere could be growing much faster? Jakarta is probably growing at a rate of something like 10%, Ho Chi Minh City at 8%, and Kuala Lumpur at 6% or more. Higher economic growth will give us greater options in dealing especially with the social challenges coming upon us, particularly from a rapidly aging population. Indeed, Singapore has been identified as a super-aging society. And to deal with a diminishing indigenous workforce. To get higher growth rates require higher productivity, which we can get through a drive for innovation, excellence, and outwardness, but also a larger workforce if we are prepared to recognize our need for it. When I was chairman of the EDB, I met the CEO of a large global company which had set up a significant research center in Singapore. However, it had then also recently set up a substantially larger research center in Shanghai in the same field. So I posed the question point blank to him as to whether he was going to close down the Singapore Centre in favour of the Shanghai Centre. His response was highly instructive. He simply said, we go to wherever the talent is. What this means is that if Singapore does not seek to attract and take in whatever beneficial capability and people are available from outside Singapore, in addition to developing the talents and abilities of Singaporeans as best we can, the enhanced economic activity will not happen. And our signal to the world will simply be, it is okay. But is it really okay? 
Of course, must always insist that when a Singaporean is most capable of taking on a job, the job must go to them and not to a non-Singaporean. This is meritocracy at work. Meritocracy is the smartest way by which a small nation like Singapore can make its future from the human capital available to us. The smallness of Singapore should also be used to our advantage in terms of speed and experimentation. But it must be experimentation with a view to scaling up for the world outside Singapore. Technology is a matter of life and death for us, as it must be for all small nations. So every Singaporean student must know technology. At the same time, graciousness is what would make Singapore a great place to live in and give meaning and purpose to the eternal striving for survival that is Singapore's fate. Being a gracious society would unlock what David Halpern has referred to as the hidden wealth of nations, where the extent to which citizens get along with others independently drives both economic growth and well-being. Much of what we can become depends on us as citizens. It's a choice of whether to die in due time on account of complacency and apathy, or to live well because we act in good time to do the, thing, to do the things which will take a long time to establish. Culture takes time to shape, but culture also becomes a foundation of strength which cannot be easily broken. What we need most of all is not maps. No one else is in our position, and no one else's map will get us to where our strengths can get us to. We have to move forward with our own compass of values, to honour our word, to honour each other, to honour innovation, excellence and outwardness. I close with what I call the honour circle. <clears throat> Start with honour-driven individuals who will do all they can with their talents and abilities. This builds to honour-driven families where children grow in self-confidence and strong values they imitate from and practice with their parents and siblings. We then go to honour-driven communities of which gracious society is a key feature. Next, we have honour-driven organisations, which may be businesses or civic organisations, where superior leadership allows people to be the best they can be and do the best they can in pursuit of innovation, excellence and outwardness. And finally, we have the honour-driven nation, where culture and values and clear leadership in government and our national institutions create a foundation for honour-driven individuals to thrive and be the best they can be. In summary, we can look forward to a thriving, successful Singapore if we first maintain our nation brand value of integrity and trustworthiness. Next, if we use our diversity in race, language, culture and religion for synergistic effect. Next, if we have facility with technology and continuous change. If we focus on identifying, developing and harnessing talents and abilities at all levels. If we release the energy and imagination of the young to be involved in national life. If we take advantage of the rise of Asia, the internet and the middle class, and if we urgently establish a culture of innovation, excellence and outwardness. Thank you, and my very best wishes for our future we must try to see clearly, choose deliberately and build now, so that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren can still call Singapore home, where they have the best chances 
for being the best they can be. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great privilege, sir, uh, Mr. Lim, to be uh, chairing this session this evening. Many of you will know that he was the former head of civil service, former chairman of EDB, and I think in a good part of the public sector will uh, refer to him as Yoda. So this is a great privilege, sir. Let me just kick off because we do have just about 25 minutes for Q&A. So you uh, depicted your honor circle, um, five categories in there. But I thought that through your lecture, I was anticipating actually five concentric circles with the family comprising individuals, of course, at the heart of it. You described someone in Block 71 saying that the key hurdle that he faced in what he was doing was his mother. You described a principal saying that the key hurdle she faced in trying to get education delivered in a different way to develop soft skills that you think our next generation will need with the parents. Uh, so sounded to me like at the heart of it should be the family individuals. But since you set them out all on equal plane, let me just uh, pose you now the political question. That's my specialty, right? Now, the parents will then say in response, no, it's the education system and it is the educators that are the hurdle to us becoming a more risk-averse society for my children to be doing something different. If they're asked what colour an apple is, it's surely red. No such thing as green, even if cold storage tells you otherwise. So how do we unlock this? You spoke about politics of openness. We're in this phase of our national life where we're trying to take ground views but you talk about this well we face this conundrum so how do we crack this uh, be it the struggle between parents and education to get us to this new s-curve of innovation or many other conundrums that we'll face to get past and to achieve the way of hope that you've discussed I suppose the reason, the reason for not having concentric circles with the family right in the centre uh, is that it will make everyone think that what you need to do is to fix a family and everything else will be fixed. I don't think so. Because the family does its bit. When the, when the kid goes to school, what does the school face? The parent may say, be adventurous, try new things. The teacher says, be safe, you know, um, be safe, otherwise I get into trouble. So, 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 so that's a problem. On the other hand, if the school says, be adventurous, try these new things, the parents say, I don't want my kid to be exposed to these dangers. So it's a problem. So, uh, and, and later when you go to work, right, the question is, what does he, uh, uh, what does he face in work? So, 
So if in work he discovers there's no point taking risks, all the smart guys who don't take risks get promoted, he takes risks, he fails one time, he gets condemned. He's not going to do this. This is why my, my belief is that has go around in a circle because every part of society needs to come to a belief to say, we better do this or otherwise we all are dead. There's no doubt everything starts with parents, right? Uh, I mean, uh, even the Chinese, the Chinese have a saying, we say by the time a child is three years old, you can see how the child is going to be like when he's grown up. Or there's another Chinese saying, we say by the time he's three years old, you can tell how he's going to be like when he's 80. Okay? Uh, I had a, a Japanese friend, and I asked, do the Japanese have such a saying? He said, oh, the Japanese also have such a saying. It is at three years old, you can tell how the child will be when he's grown up. And the Jesuits have a saying, they say, give me a child to seven and I'll give you the man. Right? And so I asked an Indian friend, he said the Indians are somewhere in between. Actually, the Indians, he said the Tamils have a saying that by five years old, you can tell how the kid is going to play. <laughs> but anyway, everybody is agreed that actually by the time the kid turns up in school, his attitude towards life and work is very much already settled. How much, uh, how much um, uh, curiosity he has, whether he learns to be, uh, to be adventurous, a lot of it is settled. In school, that's not to say schools cannot cannot uh, mold the kid into a different kind of way. Just to say that a lot starts from home. So if the parents disallow something, it's just not going to happen. And the teachers are going to listen to the parents, and the teachers are not going to take those risks. So I think every part of this whole circle needs to, everyone needs to do their part. But we need to believe that that we need to be different than what we are now if we are going to be different in our future. So to make those big policy shifts, is this going to be, uh, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? The people make the change and then the government follows, or the, which the government makes the change as the decisive leader and the people follow? I think we have a situation. Get ready with your questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a situation today yes. where you are facing a generation um, you know, the generation which has succeeded, let's say Gen X, then you're facing Gen Y, and you're facing Gen Z coming through, uh, where, where you're facing a situation where people feel that they want to make up their own mind for themselves. And I think many of these things, if the government were to take the initiative, the moment the government opens its mouth, people say, that's all propaganda, or that's all self-serving, and so they're not going to listen. So, so, so we have, oh, we, we face a very serious problem, but not, it's not just unique to Singapore. All over the world is like that. Except what makes it particularly serious for Singapore is I think we're a small place and therefore our, our, uh, our opportunity for jumping in front and our opportunity for building up this is so much greater by being small. But it doesn't mean that we are any different so far as, as what our young people expect. So, so just a general point and then you can go on to a question. It is this. I think for a long time, uh, the government that we had and People's Action Party has said that they don't believe in a politics of expedience, as meaning don't do stuff simply because it's popular, don't do stuff simply because it's comfortable, but be prepared to do stuff which is very important for Singapore's survival and success for the generations to come. Okay, so, so instead of having a politics of expedience, they say let's have a politics of explanation, as meaning we have to do these tough things but we will explain to the people who voted the government in as to why these tough things are necessary and why the government is doing it. I think, though, that if we recognize that the level of intrinsic trust has been somewhat diminished, not necessarily because of what the government in Singapore itself has done, but I think this, is, this, this changes all over the world. But in a situation where the 
population has a diminished trust in government. It's not a case of no trust. It is a case of we'd like very much to be able to trust. But the government cannot simply say, this is my explanation. I think the challenge for the future is a political of conviction. The government has to say, I cannot assume that you trust me and therefore all I need to do is to explain to you. Now I have to go one step further to say, I need to communicate, I need to demonstrate, I need to be able to convince you. Now, of course, that's very contextual, but, but how do you convince people that this is the way that we have to go? Because if we don't go this way, we're either losing out on our opportunity or we're really just on a track that will, that, that, that will really end us in trouble. But I just close with this statement. I don't believe today that politics of conviction, even that, is good enough for Singapore. I think we need to move on to what I call a politics of involvement. In other words, a politics which requires people themselves to be involved in this process. I mentioned in gracious society, the difficulty about gracious society is the government cannot bring it about because the whole nature of gracious society is the quality of the relationship between citizens. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it is something which the individual citizen has to bring about. It's not something the government can bring about. You can facilitate, you can encourage, but you cannot bring it about. And therefore, I think the challenge for Singapore is not just a political conviction, which is a position for the government to say, we need in the government's communication process, in the government's leadership process, to work on how to convince the different audiences among the population of what is good for Singapore for the future and for Singapore and for the future. But to go to a political involvement which says that we need to involve people in the process because people want to feel that they are shaping the future or at least they've got a major part in influencing the future and in shaping the future. Now, this is a lot tougher. It's and a now lot tougher. it's time to involve the audience <laughs> in this event. Thank yeah. you, Mr. Lim. So okay. it's over to you. You've heard a, a rich many of ideas. Please skip straight to the mic. Introduce yourself and pose your question. Anyone? Yes, please. No, actually, please go no. to the mic because we have overflow rooms and they won't be able to hear you unless you go to the mic. Thank you, sir. Quick question. We'll yeah, I'm uh, Eddie Chu. Your name? Yeah. I represent the Singapore Armed Forces Veteran League. Sure. Okay, so uh, as what I said, the people are paying a part. Government, as what we are different over because from Mr. Lin Chengguan's side, it's always we must do our part, but nothing mentioned about government doing their part. So you can see that. Why all the innovative companies like Laser, they don't want to even IPO in Singapore. They go to Hong Kong, go to China. Why? And then, even they build their own handphone, the Laser handphone, they don't sell in Singapore. Why? This question, the government officer have to ask these people who are innovative. Why does Joseph Schooling have to go to US? Why MMA fighter Angelini have to go to US? Where are we got the place for them to have the place for them to be innovative? Okay. Even I myself, with small case, just in the government service, we are asking for help in the end, you land in trouble and they balloon your case until you go nowhere to run away. Then you become the accused. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you, sir.
Mr. Lim? <laughs> <laughs> this is why you don't end up with concentric circle. This is why everybody must be playing their part, right? right. To be frank, in the case of Joseph Schooling, in the end, if you want to be at a standard, at a world standard to get the gold medal, you better be competing against other people which are of that standard. If you don't compete against other people of that standard, you can never be pushing yourself. And in a sense, you say, if you don't compete against people of that standard, you'll never be able to discover the limits of what you are capable of doing. Right, so in our case, Joseph Schooling has gone there to use Americans to our advantage. So what's the problem with that? We have no problem going anywhere in the world to make use of the opportunity to learn, to get experience, and so forth. Similarly for Razor, Razor's fundamental market is actually the US. It is a largest market for them. But, okay, so the issue is, I, I don't believe in the case of Razor, there is a case of they didn't want to list in Singapore, nor is it a case of they don't want to sell Razor phones in Singapore. It's a case of what is the cost? You know, everything runs in economics. Okay, this is a business. What is the cost? of setting up a whole, uh, 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 the whole business infrastructure in order to get this done. It will happen, it will happen in time, right? But this is, I, 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 uh, frankly, I think this is a situation where if we turn out and sort of say, Singapore businesses must be confined just to Singapore, that's exactly the way of thinking which will kill our businesses. Because our businesses must say, where in the world can I go and take advantage of these possibilities. The reality is Razor has quite a considerable establishment in Singapore to build up ideas and to build designs for their products. Uh, although they have another establishment in San Francisco, also to deal with because the major market is there. So I would say that the important thing for our companies is to be clear in their minds that Singapore may represent an opportunity to start and an opportunity to build up, but Singapore cannot be the end goal. And this, all of us need to recognize. Okay, yeah. next question, next comment, please. Yes. Share with us your name. Yeah. A very good evening, Mr. Lim. My name is Tsing Ling, and I'm a year one business student from NUS. So I just want to clarify a point because on the earlier part of the lecture, you talk about how the fourth generation should create a gracious society. So I just want to ask whether creating a gracious society is to create a nation that Singaporeans will be proud of or is it essential to Singapore's future survival? Or does it contribute to uh, our future success? I think, I, I think it does contribute. First, first in terms of the, uh, the, the, the nature of the society, but just as important, I take the idea from, uh, from that book by David Halpern about the hidden wealth of nations, where he says the hidden wealth of nations really is the quality of the relationships among its citizens. And that quality of the relationship is not simply a matter of life is okay in terms of the way people treat each other. Actually, it has, that has a direct impact on economic growth. So, so, so fundamentally, it, 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 the idea is about creating a society where there's good social grease running around, that there's people who respect each other as human beings and think about the other person. I'm sure also a gracious society is going to end us up with um, the civil service having people who are all the time thinking in terms of the businesses and the people they are serving is going to bring about a situation where leaders in government and leaders in companies are going to more naturally think about the effect of policies and the effect of practices 
on the on whether the employees or the customers or the public they dealing with. The gracious society idea is fundamentally a perspective which says it is something integral to our being, which says we are always thinking of the other person and the effect on the other person of what we do. That itself is going, I think, to be a powerful factor. Uh, in the success of our businesses, in the success of us as society, and the success of government itself. Over uh, to the gentleman on the right, please. Good evening, Mr. Lim. Uh, my name is Jonah, I'm a junior college student. Jonah. So my question to you is this. Throughout the entire lecture, you were talking about the need to build a gracious society, the need to feed a selfless part of a human being. So, in a sense, a non-zero-sum society. But how does this come about, or can this come about, when we live in a meritocratic society that is fundamentally zero-sum. Thank you. How, how does this come about when we live in a meritocratic society? First, the first thing I must say is, oh, definitely the whole point of uh, the remarks I've made is we are not yet there. I'm just, I'm just sharing uh, thoughts about how we can get there. And before we say how to get there, we must first, we must first have a very good idea about where it is we want to get to and what it is that we want uh, and that, that we want to, uh, to become. So, so, so we have to, there's no doubt we have to work on it. Your point concerns about meritocratic society. I believe there's a school, I know of a school in Singapore where, um, where they have this tradition where let's say whatever they consider to be the top classes at each grade occupy these particular classrooms in their central block. That is the badge of honor. Now, in order to get there, you don't have ranking standards. You don't say there are 200 kids in sec one, therefore I rank the position from number one to number 200, and I say, okay, the first 40 goes to this class, the next 40. Instead, if you, what they do is to say, no, no, no. The sec one, and the sec one class will carry on together with each other, the sec two class. Now, when you do that, and then you say the top class is the, is the average of the mark for the whole class. When you create that environment, and you say the meritocracy in that sense is about everybody in the, about the whole class succeeding, it's not about the individual succeeding. In order to get there, you therefore have a situation now where the not so bright kids want the brightest kids in their class. They want the brightest kids to be as bright as possible. And the bright kids want to do what they can to help the not-so-bright kids so that not-so-bright kids will pull their marks down. So it's a matter of how we organize ourselves and the perspective we take. If we can bring about a perspective where we say, I want the best possible people with me because that's the best way by which we can, do, we, we can achieve the most. At the same time, I want to do everything I can to help the weaker ones to raise them up. So the key is, everyone being the best they can be and everyone doing the best they can. That is the essence of meritocracy. It is not about predefining who shall go up and who shall not. It is about they say, saying, how do we create conditions so that the best, so that everyone can do the best they can according to their talents and abilities. And that has to be a definition of meritocracy, not about pre-selection. Yeah. Thank you, thank, thank you. you for your question. Next question, please. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lim. I'm uh, Mike from the Institute of Policy Studies. Uh, I understand the need from your uh, presentation that um, th there's a need for us to embrace these values and attitudes for the purposes of survival and economic growth. But I'm just wondering if this is at a compromise of our national level of happiness or individual happiness. 
uh, if you compare, if you look at other countries, or if you even look at uh, Singaporeans around us, I'm not sure if we are a really happy people, and um, whether this uh, attitude and values, which is actually founded on economic growth, would uh, further exacerbate that, or is this a compromise? Thanks. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Um, no, I, actually, I think I mentioned in my second lecture to say that uh, today, if you look at the world per capita GDP, right, Qatar is number one. I think Singapore, the last ranking is number five. Before us, I think you have Luxembourg and Liechtenstein, and I can't remember who number two was. But the point is this. I don't think we are going to be any happier if we were number one in the world. Right. So clearly, therefore, the key for our future in terms of a better life does not lie in becoming number one in terms of GDP per capita. I agree with you on that. Now the issue is what is happiness. Right. Um, I'm sure all of you have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't know if which you introduced uh, which in I your introduced, right? Like second. And lecture. the point, the point I want to uh, I want to say about that, if I were to ask people, so you, everybody knows about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So how many are there? And people are not sure when I ask them how many there are. Some people say five, some say six, some say seven. But when I ask them, so according to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what is the highest? Everybody can tell me what it is. Right. It is about self-actualization. Of course, everybody can remember because this is all about selfish self. This is feeding your selfish self. This is the point that Yunus is talking about, feeding your selfish side. But you know the remarkable thing which I mentioned in the last paragraph is that later research shows that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is inadequate. There are three more needs to the five. And so his hierarchy really is about first your physiological needs, and then you come to safety needs, then you come to love needs, because all of us need this sense about being loved by somebody. And then there's esteem needs, all of us need this sense of being respected by other people. And then it says there's cognitive needs. All of us need a sense of the reason why we are doing things. We need to understand. We are very upset. This is why you get very upset when your boss just tells you to do something without giving you the reason why you should do it. And then there's aesthetic needs. We all need to have a sense of beauty in our lives, a sense of balance, a sense that things are in order, and aesthetic needs. And after that comes self-actualization, this sense that we are now on best path of being the best that we can be. Self-actualization fundamentally is that. What's our potential compared to where we are, right? So self-actualization is actually being the best that we can be. But the highest needs of all that we discovered is transcendence. Transcendence is helping other people become the best they can be. Now, this is terribly interesting, that the highest level of happiness we can have is to give happiness to other people. Now, how are we going to discover that? And you know the remarkable thing? If you, if you go back to many of the ancient texts, actually they come to this conclusion that happiness is a, the, the deepest sense of happiness we all can have as individuals is this sense that we are capable of helping other people. I'm sure many of us feel this. This is why people spend time looking after the handicapped and the aged. This is why people spend time doing community service. This is why CEOs of companies, having come to the pinnacle of the company, decides that they, can, they don't mind spending time uh, doing work with the, you know, what you call the people, the people sector. So, so the proposition I'm putting to you is that whenever we all think that the best thing for each one of us is self-actualization, we should just try one more and say, 
what do we get when we help other people be the best they can? That sense of satisfaction to have done something for other people. Now, among all the professions, and this is my closing, among all the professions, the teachers are virtually the only ones who have got the secret. <laughs> Why do I say that? The, the, the really interesting thing about teachers is that the teacher says, my job is to do the best that I can with each child that comes to me. I, my job is to do the best that I can to help each child be the best he or she can possibly be. And therefore, if later in life this child goes to a higher socioeconomic level than me, I've succeeded. The more this child exceeds me in later life, the more successful I've been. And the satisfaction of the teacher is to feel that you've done what you can to bring this child out to become the best he or she can be. In all other jobs that we all have, when we are the head of a department, we have people under us. Too often, we don't look at the people under us as the privilege given to us to help each of them be the best they can be. Instead, we look at the people under us as, these are the tools given to me. People to serve me so that I get promoted. <laughs> I think we need to change our perspective to say that the people, that your peers that you work with and the people under you is a privilege that's given to you to do some great thing for their lives. As I said, the interesting thing is the teachers in a natural kind of way are the only ones who are catching this truth. Okay. Mr. Limo, you also did say uh, in your lecture yeah. that uh, you know, we're a small city state, so we do have to find ways to survive. We have to be the gazelle. On the other hand, you do say to the young people, don't chase the money, chase the ideas and do what right. you want. The money will follow. So in response to Mike also, would you want to say something about how the survival is not about chasing the money, but it's about really fulfilling your fullest potential? Right. Because then the money will chase you if you've got the great idea, right? I, I mean, I sort of heard that in the lecture. Yeah, right. The amount of money that chases you depends on what you are capable of. But, <laughs> but okay. But, the more we reach the full capacity of, of what we are capable of, of course, the more money will chase you. So, yes, so the idea really get, is how Singapore and Singaporeans need to get to the point where they are fulfilling their greatest potential. Oh, and the money chases that. Absolutely, absolutely. So very often when I speak to audiences of Singaporeans, and they start talking in terms of, you know, we shouldn't get foreigners in and, you know, preserve everything for ourselves and all that. I say, the problem will solve itself. When we go down, foreigners will stop wanting to come to Singapore. So don't worry. <laughs> so, if we have this perspective on non-Singaporeans to say, please join us. Because if you can join us and help grow the size of our pie, yeah. we are so happy to have you. And in the process, of course, you didn't come here for... For, uh, 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 you know, for purpose of just helping me. You came here because it's good for your life. So, yes. So if we can have everybody working together, this is, this is the perspective, again, of the team. How do you create a situation where everybody can contribute the best they can? Mm -hmm. But as I said in my speech, oh, very clearly, if you have a situation of two persons being equally capable, you must make sure, as a country, that a Singaporean is given is given that responsibility. I think that's I think that's the fairest thing we can, and even the non-Singaporeans can understand why that should be so, because in their own countries, that is what they would fully expect to be the rule of the game. Okay. Yeah. Two gentlemen back there, 
So this, uh, let's just take both uh, comments. Okay, yeah, uh, go name, ahead, sir. Uh, Thank my you. name is Francis Pavri, uh, old Singaporean. <laughs> and I, I want to talk, uh, touch a little bit on these cultural things that, that you've discussed about how the culture seems to be the essence of um, the future of Singapore. And we know that, uh, at least in my generation, when we were growing up, you know, culture was, you know, hard work, you know, self-sacrifice, do, do things for the country, etc. And we've been brought up that way, and I suppose uh, that has contributed to Singapore's success. And we know now that the culture seems to be, you know, me for myself, uh, I'll chase the money, I only get paid if, I, if uh, you give me a, a good credit for whatever it is. So there's this change, we can see this clear change. And of, of course, as you know, the flavor of the month is MRT, which also has deep cultural problems, according to <laughs> the CEO. So your question? The question is this. I mean, you were head of the civil service for a long time. You were one of the front seat, you had the front seat about seeing this change happen. Can you give us a kind of an inside view of what explains this phenomenon from a culture of high-mindedness high to this uh, culture of uh, I'll only work if the money is there? Thank what you. are your, some of your front bench insights? Okay, thank you, Francis. Over to the gentleman on this side. Anybody Henry. else, please go to the mic because we'll, we'll wrap in a few minutes, yeah. Henry, actually I'm retired over past my use-by date. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, how should I, I say that? I thank you for your, for your example of teachers who are supposed to be teaching people to be the best. But I hope, I have two encounters which I hope you, you'll take as a feedback as to how to government policy have to change, okay? My grandniece attended one of the top school. And you know what happened? When the time came for assessment, my niece was transferred out of Singapore. And the teacher was very happy. He said, well, I'm glad you're taking your daughter of my school, of my class, because her grades are pulling up down the grades of the class. Right? And then there's another example of my friend, whose daughter liked maths, but average. And the teacher was telling the father, he said, can you take your daughter out of my class? Her grades are pulling out the grades of the class as well. I mean, to me, it's like, hey, what is happening? Don't, I mean, the reason why I, I raised this is really this. You said it correctly, that um, everybody have to do the part, but what the government does how they assess teachers, for example, to impact the kids who is our future. Okay, thank you, Henry. How did the cultural change happen? Uh, what, uh, what's going on <laughs> in the education space? <laughs> the, law of the, 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 the impetus to kind of do the average and, you know, it's just sort of, wow. <laughs> what a conundrum. <laughs> Couldn't even understand that. Over to you, Mr. Lim, wise one. Okay, let me, let, let me address the second question first. You know, like you say, it's just uh, observations, as, uh, as you say, it's about feedback. Um, uh, you know, obviously, the next time I give such a lecture, you should bring the teachers in to listen to me. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but may I say this, uh, 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 in terms of fairness, you know, obviously, the, 
uh, obviously teachers and every one of us is going to react wherever we are according to the way that we are assessed. So if a teacher feels that she's being assessed on the basis of grades in class, she's going to act that way. If, she's feel, uh, if she believes that she's being assessed on the basis of, um, uh, you know, like what government used to do to sort of say, what's a value add, then that's a different way of assessment. But I must tell you, when uh, uh, a few years after I left the Ministry of Education, McKinsey, I think, did a study on uh, what is the best education systems in the world in order to come to certain conclusions uh, as to how they can be helpful to schools all over the world to improve the quality of education. And this lady uh, who was the lead consultant uh, and she was based in Dubai, I think she called me up in Singapore and said there's one thing which, they find, which she found thoroughly curious in Singapore and that is you do not have, like in some other places and some states in the US, uh, where you pay teachers bonuses according to the, um, uh, according to the results uh, of the class. They say you don't have that kind of incentives, and yet Singapore keeps coming up with these really excellent results in the PISA scores and so forth. And he says, we don't understand that. Of course, from a consultant's point of view, you can understand that consultants always would like to have a formula which says a consultant is a formula, you follow my formula, you get these results. So Singapore is very upsetting to them because we don't have this formula that they can use to go and tell their people definitely you get these results. By the way, the US, the states which have gone and sort of say you pay bonuses according to results, most of them have reversed their policies because they discover things like instead of being able to assign the best teachers to the, to the students who need the most, the most help, the best teachers say, I'm already getting great results, I'm not about to go and take a different class. I'm not going to take a class of weaker pupils, whereas if a teacher is really motivated, they say, you know, taking a class of weaker pupils is important. So what I want to say, though, is this, in all fairness, I, I, I respect the fact that you have shared your views. I can totally believe what you say. But when people look at Singapore in terms of what is the overall average, I think you have to pay, uh, I, I think you have to give credit to the fact that uh, you are coming out with this result in the education system, which a lot of people look in amazement and say, how come? And my only answer to this consultant, McKinsey, is, is because we end up in a system where uh, we have a system where we really try to motivate the teachers and the principals the best way that we can. Um, this is why you say, uh, wherever you have new buildings and you have Ministry of Education on the hoarding, is this phrase, molding the future of our nation. I can assure you that one is drummed into teachers and principals all the time, molding the future of our nation, saying that you are, you are making that future. So I respect all the points that you are making. I'm just saying that as a whole, we ought to be quite proud of this fact. And what we need to do is to keep encouraging uh, the teachers and the principals on the basis of, you know, do the best that you can. And sometimes we know you face difficulties, sometimes with MOE, sometimes with parents, but please don't be discouraged. You have to keep doing what is important for the kids in future. And this is why you cannot be teaching the kids just what is important for the exams at the end of the year, nor what is important for the last 10 years. You have to say, what is important for the next 10 years? What's happening about the future and what's the best way by which you can fit your children out for the future? And that is what I've been trying to address uh, to some extent. Now, this other thing about saying, um, how come people are chasing the money? Well, you know, so long as you leave, a, um, all of us would like to be doing jobs where we are paid at least reasonably for the job that we do. We are paid fairly for the job that we do, all of us. And, and indeed, that should be the case. 
that we ought to be requiring that we should be paid according to our performance, according to our contribution, according to what we do. All of us should be paid according to our performance, um, uh, 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 performance relative to what we are expected to do on the job. But the point I was making was that while you can do this, you are all the time going to be paid only according to your breadth of knowledge and your breadth of experience and your skills that you have today. If you keep looking out only in terms of exercising the skills and knowledge that you have, you are all the time going to be paid just what you are paid today. That's because you don't have that extra which says, let's move up. So the point I'm really making is we all the time should be looking out for new opportunities to learn new things and opportunities to create new possibilities because that's the way by which we open up the way by which we can accomplish more and hopefully in the course of accomplishing that we will be able to earn more and be paid well for what we are capable of doing because along the way we've been learning how to be better. And quickly, in a nutshell, how do we lose that sense of public spiritedness or high-mindedness that uh, Francis was referring to? I know you spent a lot of time talking about that in lecture two, but just in a quick nutshell. Oh, the quick nutshell is I wasn't, uh, you know, it was okay when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Lim. I know you emphasize the uh, incentive structure for education. You emphasize the point about value add just now. So that's key. Also, uh, you've sort of been very generous with your time. You emphasize that we, it was the age, it was the drive towards affluence that led our progress. But it's also the fixation with affluence that, we, that may cause our decline. And you've given us very many ideas as to how to ensure that we mitigate that decline and tonight, how we move to a new S-curve, to a new age of pioneers. So Yoda, let me just say this. The message forcefully, you have spoken. Thinking and acting on the message, we will. The route to missed hope, we do not take. But certainly follow the way of hope, we must and we can and it is believably achievable. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Lim and Dr. Ko. This marks the end of our fourth IPS Nadan Lecture Series by Mr. Lim. IPS will be announcing our next SR Nadan Fellow soon. We are grateful to Mr. Lim for giving us his time and for sharing with us his ideas for a gracious and flourishing society, passionately held and developed over a lifetime in public service. We shall now look forward to the collection of these lectures in a book to be published next year. To everyone present today and those who attended previous lectures, thank you for being a most engaging audience. Finally, please join me in thanking Mr. Lim again. Thank you. Wow.